Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This is Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Hello. Hello. I notice you're conspicuously not saying Happy New Year. That's because we've already done a New Year episode. But we recorded it before Christmas. I know, we fessed up to that. I think I think by January the 9th, which is when the, this podcast goes out, people have sort of... Do you have a cut-off? Do you have a cut-off for saying it? Mm. Mine is Midsummer. Is that right? Yeah. Do you remember when we had checkbooks and you used to always put the previous year on the day? Yes. We don't yeah. have checkbooks really anymore, do we? No, sadly not. I used to like a checkbook. I tell you what, I never understood. Yeah. Remember blankety blank? Yes. Checkbook what, and pen. One of the prizes was a checkbook and pen. Yes. So was there then a bank of blankety blank that that checkbook would enable you to write checks from? I haven't considered this. If anybody's listening who maybe you or more likely uh, somebody of you. The yes. previous generation was a contestant on Blankety Blank. I'd love to know more about what I mean, those just sort of talking were. of game shows. Mm. You know, I think I did let this slip to you before Christmas, but I discovered about my esteemed shadow energy minister Alan Whitehead that he was a contestant in the nineteen sixties on Cracker Jack. Cracker Jack, uh, yeah, and he was he was he was extreme. I mean, Alan is a very serious guy who knows so much about the energy system. And yet it turns out he was a not only a contestant on something called Double or Drop, where the kids would have presents piled on them, and if they dropped them, they'd end up with a cabbage. But, uh, he was, was also presents a... and cabbages. Was they piled with cabbages and presents, I think? No, he was piled... Oh, really? I think so. Well, that's interesting. Anyway, he was not only... Much as a young person listening a to this thinking, he was a, they grew up watching he was, children holding cabbages on TV. He, uh, that he was for a, entertainment He was in a champion. Wow. He, was, he was like a champion. I think he might even have been a champion of champions. You know, they do head-to-head debates in the run-up to elections. He should challenge whoever his opposite number is to a <laughs> head-to-head game of double or drop the cabbage. I think he'd win. 
Wow, what what an interesting detail about him. I know. How did that emerge? Hmm, an office drinks. As these things so frequently do. Yeah, exactly. Speaking of game shows, yes. have you seen The Traitors? No. So I, I was late on this. It finished just before Christmas, but it is one of the greatest things I've ever seen. You have to watch it. Now, I know you're not generally a reality show person, but li- listen to this for a concept. Yeah. 20 members of the public. Yes. Taken to a Scottish castle. I'm only just with you, yeah. Every day, yeah. they complete challenges yeah. to increase the prize pot up to £100,000. Yes. So, so a shared prize yes. pot. So far, so so what, right? Yeah. Listen to this. On the first night, they're all sat around a big table, yes. blindfolded, and the host, who is Claudia Winkleman, goes around and taps three of them on the shoulders. Those three are then the traitors. Yes. And they are trying to steal the prize pot. From the rest of them, <laughs> it's it is it's amazing. But how so, do they? Steal so, okay, it? so every day from then on, the traitors get to murder, quote unquote, yes. one person. Yeah. So this is like a kind of yeah. kids' game, isn't yes. it? Yes. And then the others each night all gather around the table and have to discuss who they think their traitors are. Well, not not the others. All of them do. Yeah, because, all of them. Yeah. So the ones who are traitors, they're. Pretending and what's the, the victory constitute? Well, I think the traitors get to steal the prize pot for themselves. I'm, I'm only on episode 10. But presumably they have to get... All the people have to be got rid of. Yes. And they're only allowed to I get... Think, ri- I think maybe you end up with three people, so it's three people splitting this uh, prize pot. Oh, I see. Yeah, it's so good. It's the most psychologically interesting thing I've seen on TV in years. Why didn't they ask you to be the host? Because I have uh, no profile, no, uh, no, no experience be, in hosting a game you'd show. Have been very, I think I'm you'd... not particularly televisual. This face, I don't know if it's one that people would enjoy seeing as much as Claudia Winkleman. No, I think I think you I think you'd be good if they do. I don't know, like making money for charity, some kind of celebrity version. I know you tend to turn these things down, but you'd be great at it, at either sniffing out a traitor, or I think we'd all love to see you. Because you're Mr. Nice Guy, we'd all love to see you as a traitor as well. Do you think you're thinking there's going to be sort of celebrity traitor? It's it's inevitable. I think think Matt Hancock is already there. You'd be able to use it as an uh, as an opportunity to talk about GB Energy in the same way as yeah. Matt Hancock only yeah. did I'm a Celebrity yeah. to talk about his his issues yeah, that he I champions. Think, I think. Oh, it's so good. Right. It's really good. Well, you are sort of slightly selling it to, on me. Honestly. I'm not going to watch it, but you're slightly selling it on me. When have I ever given you a Duff TV recommendation? I mean, you didn't really take to The Masked Singer, but and We didn't really take to Bad Sisters in the end. You've become very squeamish in your old age, haven't you? Yeah, I think so. There's quite a lot ruled out. Law, politics, <laughs> sort of murders. I suppose treachery and backstabbing isn't isn't the thing you want to watch. I mean, I think you sort of, I think, you know, bring back... I only think Bad Sisters is okay, by the way. Cracker Jack! Right, shall we talk about what we talk about this week? Yes. This week, we're looking at our education system. And... Why we shouldn't necessarily be thinking of it as a one-size-fits-all model. We are going to be talking to three people who are incredibly passionate about changing the system so that more children and young people can reach their potential. We're going to be speaking to Dr. James Mannion, who is fellow podcaster and a former science teacher. Too, and I'm, I'm, I'm quite starstruck about this because I love her Twitter account and, uh, and her blogs. Uh, clinical psychologist Dr. Naomi Fisher. And then finally... We're off to your turf, Doncaster. Yeah, Andy Sprakes, um, who is a 
really inspiring head teacher. Yeah, co-founder of the city's most oversubscribed school. And it's a school that does things slightly differently. And we'll, we'll find out more about that. Oh, and then as a bonus, actually, um, th- this will be interesting to our listeners because we're going to be speaking to Suzanne Haywood, who is going to be telling us about an exciting opportunity. Uh, if, if, if you have ever harboured your own Jeffocracy fantasies, if you've thought, I've got an idea, then Suzanne has something to tell you about. And a big prize at the end of it. And who knows, maybe, Jeff, maybe you'll enter. Well, full of ideas, me. What's your reason to be cheerful? Um, my reason to be cheerful is for Christmas, my wife bought me a duffel coat. I've never owned one. And I love it. I feel that like it's the coat that I was born to wear. Wow. Have you ever had a duffel coat? No, they've got slightly unfortunate implications in the Labour Party because of what happened with Michael Foote. Wasn't that a donkey jacket? Oh, is that right? Yeah, don't confuse your donkey jacket with your duffel coat. A duffel coat is like the sort of... (laughs) You're talking about the toggles? Yeah, the toggles. You're saying the thing that that, uh, identifies it as a duffel coat is the toggles? Yes. Very interesting. It's not not true, actually. Really? Because uh, a duffel coat is named after the town of Duffel in Belgium. You're making that up. No, I'm not. And since the 11th century... You're really century, making that Since up. the 11th century, they, they produced a certain type of cloth no, that no, is common no, in no, the no, no. Uh, bluff. duffel coat. Bluff. No, those buttons bluff. predate that. They, they're, they're, you're back in uh, you know, ancient China for no, those buttons, bluff. those toggles. Bluff. No, it's real. Are you serious? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I've become very duffel-obsessed. Hmm. Maybe we could go to the town of Duffel in Belgium and do an outside uh, broadcast. I think you should tweet a picture of yourself in the duffel coat. I will. What's your reason to be cheerful? Mine is actually a TV recommendation. It may have come from you and it may not have come from you. Um, White Lotus. Oh, the second series is fantastic. Yeah. Well, we're, we're actually on the first series and we quite like it. Oh, I think the second series is, is a quantum leap ahead of the first series. Wow. I liked the first series, but I loved the second. It's sort of quite escapist. Mm. It's not got no bearing on politics, really. Mm. No bearing on the law. It's just... Bit of sunshine. Bit of sunshine. Were you ever a fan of El Dorado? Mm, Not so much. (laughs) Reasons to be cheerful with Ed Millibans and Jeff Lloyd. So to start our conversation, we're going to talk to Dr. James Mannion, who is Director of Rethinking Education, a teacher training organisation. James, thank you so much for joining us. It's an absolute pleasure. Thank you for inviting me on. It's a pleasure. Maybe you can start by telling us a little bit about your background and what made you realize that our education system needed a rethink yeah sure i mean <laughs> you come to the right person i spend my entire life thinking about about how we could, should do education differently to answer your question the, the starting point i mean my mum was a teacher you know it was always on on the radar but um many years ago i was just doing some temping work for the probation service weirdly and i was a, i was a typist i could type quite quickly it put me on the typing desk and it was my job to type up pre-sentence reports right so when somebody's committed a crime and they've been found guilty but they're waiting for sentencing they have an interview with a probation officer and they basically get the backstory and so and I was there for about three or four months and through this window of, of time if you like I just had this incredible insight into the life stories of hundreds of people um, whose lives had gone badly and often you would you, you would you would hear their backstory and you would find that you know often it was like some bad thing had had befallen them and then they were just unable to cope with it. Like they lost their job. There was a bereavement. There was a, a betrayal or something like that. 
Some of them just had had been dealt a really, really bad hand from birth. And I started thinking, you know, you can't go into every home. You can't change the parental experience that, that young people have. But we do have this, you know, 10 or 15 year window into every young life, the vast majority of, of, of young lives, the ones who go to school. And how are we using that time? We don't seem to be helping people to to be resilient and to be able to... To, to drive your own process of learning as well. So it's something that I thought about a lot before I became a teacher and then later a researcher and now a teacher trainer. And other ways in which that schooling as it's done in this country not only doesn't compensate for the other factors in a child's life, but actually can, can actively do damage in terms of self-esteem or the sense of your own potential. A hundred percent. And it's a hard conversation to have because people don't like that. <laughs> they don't like to acknowledge this idea that these schools, because it's all well-intentioned, right? Like to create these these communities where young people can come together, where we can look after them so their parents can go to work and we educate them and they're filled with all of these resources and these highly skilled, compassionate people and so on. But absolutely the way in which schools are set up the way in which this idea has evolved over time, because it wasn't designed by anyone. It's just sort of been cobbled together and it's like mutated and evolved and changed over over many, many years. And so all of this well-intentioned stuff absolutely sometimes does damage. And what are some of those mutations or hangovers from a previous age where we understood education or even child psychology differently that continue to exist and limit the school system? Yeah, I mean, I, this is such a huge question. There are loads. I, I recently interviewed a guy on my, I have a podcast called Rethinking Education. And it's a long form podcast and we have very in-depth conversations. And I interviewed this guy called Chris Bagley, who's a, an educational psychologist. And he's writing a book at the moment about what he calls shadow cultures. Like these these really ancient, ancient ideas that go back to, to the Greeks and even further back into history. And he identifies three, three big things that, that are sort of like hangovers that we struggle with. One is the idea of the order of three, right? The idea that people fall into a hierarchy of three, like the, the kings, the sort of the, the workers and the peasants, say, or whatever. And that this idea we see replicated endlessly throughout history, the three school systems, and then we move to a comprehensive system, and then it sort of got internalized into top, middle and bottom sets. We see it in the class system. So that's a very, very deep-rooted idea which isn't backed by science or data. The second one that he talked about was the tower of right knowledge, this idea that, that some types of knowledge are more valuable than others. And we saw this this week with, with Rishi Sunak's rather ludicrous pronouncement that every child is going to be essentially forced to study maths until the age of 18. The third one is what he describes as the myth of the heroic individual, right? The idea that we are better when we're in competition with other people. And if you think about the school system and especially the assessment system, it's just a, a dog-eat-dog competition for essentially what's a finite number of grades. And, and you know, one-third of kids fail their GCSEs. One-third of kids leave school essentially branded a failure because they didn't pass either maths or English or both. 
it's one of those things that has come from a, from from a good place that we of course we want kids to be literate and numerate and we want to have standards and so we impose these sort of past past boundaries and we want to you know incentivize schools to do everything that they can to get those kids over the over the line but that system also means that one in three around 32% or something fail you know it, it doesn't have to be that way we don't have to have a system that fails one third of kids every year by design your critique sounds pretty comprehensive, but I was wondering the extent to which there are sort of points of entry into the system to make it better. Yeah, absolutely. I want to be clear that like the nature of rethinking education is one of, of, of criticality. You know, we're criticizing the way that things are done. And I want to be really clear that actually there's so much amazing, amazing stuff in our education system. I adore being in schools. The kids want the best for themselves. They look out for each other. The teacher, teachers are wonderful people. There's loads of stuff that we could do. So in my view, I think that the aim of education should be autodidacticism. You know, like the aim of education should be to get every young person to the point where they are able to learn under their own steam. And James, what you said you were in school this morning. What, what's the kind of thing you're teaching or training teachers to do? There's three big ideas that really come under this umbrella of self-regulated learning. One of them is something called metacognition. It's often described as, as thinking about thinking. When you're asking kids to translate a piece of text or to do some equations or whatever, they, they, they articulate their thoughts as they're doing it and they listen to one another doing it. The second one is self-regulation. Self-regulation is about monitoring and controlling your feelings. Often a kid arrives in a lesson and their nervous system is dysregulated. They're not able to access their frontal lobes because they're jangled. And so self-regulation is about checking in with how you're feeling and then taking some sort of action to get into the zone. That's what I've been doing with this whole 200 teachers in this school this morning, like doing breathing techniques, like noticing, you know, if you're, if you're catastrophizing, there's like reframing exercises that you can do to get yourself into a more positive mindset. And lastly, with regard to self-regulated learning more like focusing on learning itself one thing is like the weekly review where you look back at the week and you go okay what did we learn last week what did you find easy i want to go on james's course <laughs> i know i was listening to that and i was thinking me and ed need to learn how to do that I know, I honestly know. well this stuff i'm talking to the teachers as much as i'm talking to the teachers about about their kids like teachers are very overworked. They're really stressed out. I was a science teacher. And then in, in 2010, I was working at a school that was, it was in special measures in a deprived area on the south coast of Sussex. Um, and we got a new head teacher in and he wanted to do all of the, the quick fixes that you need to do to get out of special measures. But then he wanted to also implement long-term cultural change at the school. And one thing that he wanted to do was to introduce a learning to learn curriculum or self-regulated learning. And so, and I realized straight, and, and straight away that this was an amazing opportunity to do something really bold and different. Um, and I wanted to capture it in the most robust way possible. And so I did a, a PhD, which, which was an eight year study because we followed four cohorts of children from year seven through to year 11, through to GCSE. Um, there was one control cohort and three learning to learn cohorts. And so, so this took the form of, of, a, of a taught curriculum in, with the whole of year seven in the first year for five lessons a week, 20% of the curriculum time to just teach them how to learn, to do project-based learning. We had them doing philosophy. We had them doing lots of speaking and listening, 
lots of journaling and lots of reflecting on on learning because that's essentially how you do it. And then it expanded into the years eight and nine. And so over three years, those young people took part in over 400 lessons. What was the outcome of the academic exercise? Unbelievable. Like those kids went on to achieve the best set of results that that school had ever seen by a country mile. And in particular, it was especially beneficial for disadvantaged kids. So the disadvantaged gap closed from the bottom up almost completely. What if you were Secretary of State for Education <laughs> in a fancy utopia? What, what would be the first thing you would do to take this further? Yeah, that's such a good question. Thank you. And, and I'm hoping that it's so when I'm the Secretary of State rather than if. So, so, so the major problems that we face, right? Um, attendance is a huge issue. There's a million, a million persistent absentees in this country. That's about one in nine kids is a persistent absentee. And, and when you're a persistent absentee, like it's not fun. Like you get loads of letters home. There's loads of aggro in the household. Parents get fined. They get threatened with custodial sentences. And one in nine kids are choosing that strife over like being in school. So, and that tells us something very important, I think, about their lived experience of school. Mental health, the statistics are just so upsetting and, and alarming. The, the, the statistics around mental health, one in six kids have a probable mental health disorder. Um, that's huge. Teacher recruitment and retention is just not in good shape at all. But I think that the mother of all problems, to answer your question, is the fact that education policy is so closely tied to the electoral cycle. I think we need to decouple education policy from, from the electoral cycle. And I think that you could do that by setting up some sort of a cross-party group, something that operates a bit like a select committee. And one way that you do that is to use a vertical slice team. You take a cross-section. So within a school, instead of having the senior leaders make all of the decisions, we have a senior leader on this team, but also a middle leader, an early career teacher. So you're looking at it through fresh eyes. Uh, the SENCO, the special needs coordinator, teaching assistants. You harness, you sort of unleash all of this latent potential and enthusiasm and like problem solving capacity for people to make smart decisions at the point of need. But I'm very aware that I'm speaking, you know, to Ed Miliband here, who knows a thing or two about how these things work. Oh, and we're, so big, we're big fans. And Jeff Lloyd, actually. I mean, he knows a lot more. <laughs> Ed, do you not think this is like deliberative democracy, but in an education setting? I mean, that's we're big fans of decentralising power and letting people make smart, informed decisions is a great way forward it's like people at all levels of a system working in harmony toward a common goal dr james mannion from rethinking education thank you so much thank you both so much it's been an absolute delight to meet you both i look forward to hearing the rest of the episode well i'm very excited to say that with us now is clinical psychologist dr naomi fisher hello hello it's nice to be here well it's, it's nice for me because I'm, I'm such a fan of your twitter account and of your blogs and i'm not the only one what do you think that says that writing about this stuff has, has gained such a following it does feel really interesting to me that there seem to be so many people interested in what i'm saying and i think part of it is that i'm 
I'm kind of providing a voice for parents who feel that their experiences of the school system and their young people's experience of the school system haven't really been reflected in what people talk about. It's resonated with so many people, um, which, you know, I think is really sad. I think it is a sad indictment of what's going on in our education system at the moment and how many people feel there really needs to be change. And it makes sense, you know, everybody's experienced their education system and has their own views of what that was for them. Maybe we can start by just talking about your view of the purpose of it. I mean, is is it about preparing children for the quote unquote real world, getting a job or something else entirely? Where is the focus currently and, and where do you think it should be? So I think the focus of our education system at the present is generally focused towards exam results. I think that children are told very early on that they need to get good exam results. That's going to be the ticket to their future. And there's a lot of pushing from ever earlier, really, to get them performing in tests. And there's there's a kind of way of thinking about learning, which is very dominant at the moment, which is basically that it's about remembering lots of things, remembering lots of facts. And there's a whole sort of field of cognitive science devoted to how to get people to remember more stuff. And I think, you know, there's nothing wrong with that cognitive science. There's a good evidence base for it, but I don't think it's the same as education. I think that we should be thinking about how children grow, how they develop, how they learn in a much, much wider way than that. If the emphasis is on that remembering facts and lists of kings and queens or being able to regurgitate stuff in an essay or mm-hmm. uh, in, in an exam, what does a better version look like? Well, if you look at how young children learn, then they learn in a really interactive process with the world. So in fact, the strange thing is we know this in early years. So if you go to a good early year setting, you'll see lots of different opportunities for children to do different things. You'll see adults interacting with children in a very kind of collaborative way. And you'll also see lots of opportunities for children to follow their interests and to practice things like making choices, to practice problem solving, to be seen very much as an active partner in their learning. Then what happens as they go through school is they become more and more passive. So what we're doing to them as they get older becomes much more, this is what we you need to know. We're going to tell it to you. Your job is to remember it and to regurgitate it later on. I don't think that has to happen. I think we could retain this kind of spirit that we have in early years of let's help young people learn how to learn. Let's help them learn how to make decisions. Let's help them follow their interests which would require us to trust children much more than we do currently. I think right now we've got this system where we bring them in at about five or six and we say, right, you know, they are these very free young beings who like to explore the world. They like to be active. And what we really want to do is get them into a desk and sit them down and teach them phonics or maths, because that's what they should be doing at this stage. And that's pretty arbitrary. You know, in this country, we do this at age four or five. In other countries, they do it at age seven or eight. Even in Scotland and Wales, they're starting to do it later. Anyone who's a parent knows trying to keep a child sitting down and teach them something you want to you want to teach them that they don't want to know really hard work and teachers spend a lot of their time on that trying to get those children doing these things that actually aren't really developmentally appropriate to what extent Naomi is this cyclical because you know when I hear you talking about school and my experience of my kids being at school it feels quite different than when I was at school when maybe the culture you're in favor of was more prevalent is that is that right there is definitely a kind of cyclical nature to this where things come and go. Yes. And I think that school over the last 20 years, certainly since I attended school, has become much, much more rigid, much more focused on 
facts, theory, learning stuff in a very quite a rigid way and not a very child-centered way. I do think that it can be a bit too polarized and it's very easy to see on social media. We start to talk about progressive versus traditional and it's all about these fights. I don't think that's a very helpful way of thinking about it because for me, part of what's really important is are we trying to empower children to grow up making choices for themselves, to grow up seeing themselves as active learners, as people who make active decisions about their life. And part of it that I see in your writing is about finding a child's passion mm-hmm. and then going with them into uh, as they explore that and, and they will learn and that will be an education in and of itself. I think it's more like joining with children to help them learn about the things they care about, as opposed to saying, these are the things that are important for you to know, and we're going to make you do them. And I think, actually, you know, if we look at uh, the developmental literature on how children learn, children are drawn to be part of society. They're drawn to learn the things that are useful for them. And if you look at young children, again, they're really interested in learning all sorts of things. They're often fascinated by numbers and letters and all that kind of thing. But then we kind of assume in schools that that has to be made. We have to make them do that, that we have to take that desire away from them. We say things to them like, "Okay, you need to learn these reading things because you're going to need to learn to read when you're older, which is, of course, true. But that doesn't mean that for the five-year-old or the six-year-old, there's a purpose in that. Do you see what I mean? There's not a kind of they haven't got that drive at that point. We're trying to push that into them. And I think we do a lot of damage when we do that. And so, Naomi, you've got this idea of self-directed learning. Talk to us about what that means in practice. Okay, so self-directed learning is when the young person or the learner is the person who can choose what they learn, they can choose how they learn it, and they can choose when to stop. So it's within a curated environment, which adults provide in combination with adults who will be facilitating this, we're helping them follow their interests. So what about the parents who are listening to this and thinking, well, if, if my kid was just following their interest, it'd be Minecraft. Minecraft is a fabulous learning tool. I don't know if either of you have played Minecraft. I've played quite a lot of Minecraft. And when parents say that to me, I say, okay, can you get in there with them, with the Minecraft? Can you learn to play Minecraft with them? Can you expand the world? Because Minecraft is actually an amazing world and there's so much to expand there if that's their interest. There are books about Minecraft. I know young people who write stories about Minecraft. You can start to code in Minecraft, but it's about getting in there with them, with their interests and starting from that rather than trying to pull them away from it and say, right, Minecraft is just play. What you should be doing is your maths and English because actually there's loads of maths and English in Minecraft. But actually then it sounds like not saying you've got a choice what you learn. It's more we're going to find ways in which you can learn which appeal to your interests. Ooh. Well, I think that changes over time, you see. When children are younger, they don't think consciously like that. Young children are unlikely to be thinking, I want to learn about this, I'm going to go and do it. Young children, they're just in a way where they're thinking, I'm interested in this, so that's why I'm going to do it. English and maths are really useful, and they're around us in the world everywhere. And that we can help young people see that, and they will want to learn English and maths. So it's kind of finding the purpose. And often for them, the purpose might be Minecraft at that point in their lives. What extent, Naomi, is this, is your critique about the age of kids at which this kind of imparting of knowledge is undertaken? And to what extent is it a sort of more general critique of the system? It's both. I think the damage we do really early on is quite profound. And I think there's a really strong developmental literature which shows that 
young children don't learn best when put in desks and told what they need to learn. But I also think that our whole system is based on an idea of competition. We know that only 70% of them are actually going to get those passing grades because that's how the GCSE system is set up. So what are we doing for these young people? They're set up to divide children into groups. And I think that's the wrong way, actually. But the, the trouble is, I guess, then employers and further and higher education, they they are wed to this idea of the metric yeah. as well. And the parents, even though even if they don't think it's a great way of educating children, feel that they have to engage with that to give their kids a, a good chance in life. So... How does change happen? Well, I don't think we need GCSEs at 16 for a start. There are many countries that don't have a national exam at 16. I just spent a couple of years in France. They don't have a national exam at 16. Their national exams are 18 and 19, and they're about university entrance. I was really interested to see that, that it seemed to mean that we gave young people a lot more time to grow. I would like to see it more like a kind of qualifying exam. So it'd be like, okay, like the driving test. Okay. So I, I failed my driving test three times. Um, nobody tells me regularly that that means that I'm a bad driver for life. I just thought it was a bit annoying because I'd have to pay for another driving test. I would like to see the kind of end of school exams more like that. So you could be like, okay, I'm at the stage where I'm ready to take my driving test out. I'm going to take it. If I fail it, I'll do it again next year. It's not the end of the world. And it's a kind of marker that you've got a particular level of literacy and numeracy rather than this giant competition, which we have at the moment at 16. When so much of what you say sounds like like a no-brainer, why why doesn't it happen? Well, I think one of the best things we learn at school is that school is really necessary and it has to be how it was done to me. Most of us spend 13 years at school and that's where we learn that school is entirely necessary as it is. It's a, it's a schooling process. But I also think we've got this system at the moment where we, we focus very narrowly. When we talk about what works in education, generally they mean what works in terms of test results. And one of the things that brought me into this area, because I'm a clinical psychologist, I'm not an educational psychologist, that means that I work in mental health. And what brought me into this area really was meeting lots and lots of children who were very unhappy and who were telling me about how school made them feel. And my role was to write reports and to try and kind of help them get on with it and to write reports, writing back to school saying, you know, this is what they find difficult. But there was never a part where the schools are saying, is the way we run actually doing damage to our young people? Is the, are all the mental health problems that I'm seeing in my clinic as a clinical psychologist actually partly a result of this very pressured system, very academic system that we're putting all of our young people through? There's no feedback loop. You know, no one ever asks. It's like I'm off in a hospital doing that. <laughs> and so, Naomi, without asking you to be unnecessarily simplistic, what is the alternative? What's your vision of the alternative? So my vision of the alternative is a system which really puts the kind of core of psychological thriving at the heart of education. So rather than asking, how can we get children to pass all these tests? How can we put them through a system where they do the best in exams? It would be saying, how can we help all of these children learn? And we do know what sort of things young people need to learn to thrive. We know that they need good relationships. We know that they need a kind of sense of purpose and meaning. And we know that autonomy is really important for young people. And I would like to see a system that built on that. And as I say, we actually do that in early years. We just end it way too early. 
Naomi, it's so interesting to talk to you. I really recommend that people uh, follow you on social media and also uh, have a look at your Substack. And thanks so much for coming on and sharing your ideas. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you, Ed. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Well, I'm delighted to say that we are now joined by Andy Sprakes, who is Chief Academic Officer and co-founder of the XP School in Doncaster and somebody who I know very well and is a good friend of mine. Andy, thank you so much for joining us. Not a problem at all, Ed. It's great to be here. I want to take you back down memory lane, Andy, because I was a freshly faced member of parliament and you were the head teacher at Camps Mount School in my constituency. And I remember the bell going in the school. And I remember you turning to me and saying, you see, you said it's, and it's really stuck in my mind, it's an industrial age school for the information age. And I think that speaks quite a lot to the way you think about education. So talk to us a little bit about your journey to the XP school before we talk about what happens at the XP school. Right. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I wasn't the first person to say that, so I can't give no. <laughs> you credit for that. But uh, yeah, it was a long time ago now. Uh, it is a trip down memory lane, but I suppose at Camps Mount, when I was head at Camps Mount, we had a we had a really devastating fire, and so I, I kind of watched my school disappear in about four or five hours on a Saturday night into Sunday morning, and so that kind of is is quite a challenge to any paradigm, really. We got the school up and running, and we we based our school out of the community, out of a number of different buildings in the community. So even though we'd lost the school and it was a really tough time in lots of different ways, it also present, presented us with an opportunity to do some really interesting things around how we delivered our curriculum. I worked with with Gwyn, who was a colleague and a friend of mine who was also the co-founder of XP, to look at how, how we could use technologies as well to enhance and connect learning, even when you don't have a school building. And so it, it led to, the, to kind of real innovations, I think, in my own thinking about what school could be and, and also the purpose of school, really. 
Talk to us then about the philosophy behind XP School and how it would be different from other secondary schools. After the fire, I managed to, Gwyn managed to go to a school called High Tech High in San Diego in California. We were doing project-based learning. And he phoned me up and he said, Andy, you've got to come and see this school. It's absolutely amazing. So I was a kind of cynical Yorkshireman. I thought, yeah, I'm not that good. <laughs> uh, but I'll go and see it because I trusted Gwyn. So I did. I went out and it blew me away, really. Um, and it was the way that the kids were able to talk about their their learning. The kids' work had agency. But what really blew me away was the way that the kids would interact with adults and would talk to adults and talk about their learning, talk about their work, talk about the impact of their work that they were doing that was beyond themselves. And so on the plane back, I kind of saw all this great stuff and it blew my mind. I thought, crikey, why, why can't my kids do do that? And I kind of agonised that for about five hours, just thinking about why can't... They're the same kids. These are just kids from San Diego. Why can't kids from a pit village in Donny do, do, do those kind of things? And it was the school was great, and the kids were doing really well as well. But I just felt that there was that extra bit that we should have been getting out of the kids. And the, the conclusion I came to really was exactly that. It wasn't the kids' fault. It was my fault. I, I wasn't giving them the opportunities to do what the kids were doing in uh, California. So we then went and saw some other schools. I thought, all right, so we can actually, we could teach our kids through projects, through expeditions, but there's a real basis in the the standards of the national curriculum that we can use to, as a starting point, to connect those together, to combine uh, subject disciplines, to enhance and deepen the connections between subjects. And it's sort of breaking down the silos, isn't it, between English and maths and history and geography by this project-based learning. So I was part of one of your projects last year, which was around the climate crisis. And so they'll do a project each term, yeah? Yeah, that's right. We don't use the term project-based learning because it's much maligned, actually. Right, okay. Um, and, and sometimes I can understand why, because... Project-based learning, when it's done badly, it's really bad. Right. Um, so, so what we call them expeditions, and they're standards-based expeditions, so we respect the integrity of subject disciplines. But we found that when you get groups of staff collaborating together on a guiding question, so it might be, you know, what does Doncaster owe to the miners is, is one that is an is a expedition that we do in Year 7. The Year 7s have just, have just made a film about the importance of the mining industry to the history of Doncaster. So they're really important stories that will be lost if we don't get our kids to tell those stories. And can you explain for people who aren't used to this type of learning how how an expedition like that touches on all these other other subjects? Okay, so for example, if I use From the Ground Up, that's, uh, that's a, a collaborative expedition between our STEAM team. So we have science, technology, engineering, arts and maths, who are, are a team who work alongside our human team, which is our humanities and our English team who work together. They, they co-plan that expedition. So the kids will look at, in science uh, sessions, they'll look at rock, at rock formation, They'll look at why Doncaster had pits geographically and geologically. In English and in history, the kids will be looking at the social aspect of of mining, so the Industrial Revolution. We work with experts, so we're ex-miners. We'll come into the school, we go out on visits as well uh, to the Coal Mining Museum, 
but we bring that work back into the classroom. So it isn't just a trip. We go out on field work, but the kids become experts first. So they understand the geology before we work with the guy from the Royal Geological Society who, who will come in and then they're blown away by our kids. And can the approach work within the structure of our current exam system, Andy, GCSEs and A-levels? Yes, it can. And I mean, that's all different debate around exams and, you know, the, the efficacy of exams. But in terms of what we do through expeditions, because they're standards-based, then we cover the standards that the kids need to have acquire to be able to do their their GCSEs as well so it's it's not a binary choice what we do is a model it's a model of how you can approach learning and I mean the purpose for us is that we want our kids to produce really beautiful work work that they grapple with that they've crafted that they have an investment in which helps them to grow their character so they, they understand their social responsibilities to themselves and each other, to the community that we live in and to the wider world. After you'd met those kids in San Diego, what did you specifically identify about the way things are traditionally done or, or, or commonly done in the education system over here that was creating kids who didn't, didn't have those qualities? That's a great question, Jeff. And I mean, I suppose what we saw was that kids were given more, more freedom that they were given they were given a purpose to their learning as well that wasn't just a narrow one dimensional focus on academic outcomes that education was viewed there as as being bigger than that as being bigger than yourself it's about others and that's where the concept of crew comes from i think you should explain what crew is so crew is a that's pretty much our where we base our culture really so we have every day for 45 minutes we have groups of 12 or 13 students who are in a crew and we we look at things like our habits of work and learning we talk about those we look at academic progress we talk about service and that can range from tidying our, our local environment to visiting the elderly in homes to, to support the work that our amazing carers are doing in, in, in our social care system we go out on an outward bound at the start of year seven and we answer the question, what is crew? And the kids come back with, it's about showing courage, it's about uh, showing respect, showing integrity, being compassionate towards others, showing craftsmanship and quality. And there are character traits and we live and breathe those. And the kids, uh, they go to Abadovi or they go to Ullswater and it's the first time they're away from home, very many of them. They've sometimes not met each other because they're in year seven and they're in their crew and uh, they spend a night in the wilderness and then they climb a mountain together and they all do it together. If Everybody has to get to the top of that mountain and that's where the kids understand the concept of crew and they get it straight away. They, they understand social equity. So adults struggle. Kids don't. It's absolutely get it. And they say, but we've all got to get to the top. So I'll carry your bag because I know you're struggling. And then what we do is we bring that back in into the into the school and it becomes part. We, the metaphor is we've all got to get to the top of the mountain. It's no point if I get nine nines at GCSE, that's not as valuable if everybody else fails because we're part of something bigger than ourselves. So it's about equity for us. Whenever I talk to you, I find myself incredibly inspired, and I'm sure our listeners will 
be inspired too. And I can see from Jeff that he's inspired. Well, I know Jeff well enough to know when no, he's what inspired. What I love about it is like often on this podcast, we're, we're looking at ideas and they're sort of like, yeah. oh, if we lived in a utopia, this would be yeah. the way you'd do it. Whereas the fact that you're doing this know, in the existing system, which you know, yeah. is, is difficult yeah. for schools, the fact that it can be done and it is happening is, is exciting. I think. Yeah, no, honestly, whenever I talk to Andy, I sort of feel this. Let me ask you a difficult question, though. What's the biggest challenge of your way of doing things or are there people you lose along the way? Because it sounds a bit too good to be true. Yeah, yeah, I, I understand that. Well, again, it's like I said at the start, this is a model. I, I'm not I'm not sat here saying that everybody no. should run a school no. like XP. No. You don't have more resources than other schools, do you? No, well, we just funded exactly the same. And you're relatively, but you're a relatively small school. We're deliberately sized, yeah. We've got 250 kids at XP and 250 kids at XP, so we have 50 kids in a, in a year group, which lots of people say is, that well, small schools are unaffordable. We've got a surplus. We're absolutely fine. So, I mean, I suppose in terms of the what the, uh, the challenges are, I suppose sometimes it's because we have a system that is so heavily focused on academic outcomes, often other outcomes are, are missed. Yeah. You know, so for example, in our secondary schools, we've had one exclusion, permanent exclusion in seven, eight years now. That's very, very low. I mean, that, and that one was a disaster, but we don't have high levels of exclusion because we work with our kids restoratively. We get them to understand when they make mistakes. Now, I'm not saying that always works. Sometimes it doesn't, but most of the time it doesn't. That's borne out by our figures. It's about the purpose of education for me. I keep coming back to that. What do we want education to be? And what do we want our kids to be? You know, my daughter comes to the school, as do Gwyn's kids. We built the school because we want a school like this for our kids. So I'm not, I don't want to convince anybody about what we're doing. I believe in what we're doing. Um, but like I say, there are lots of other ways that you can climb the mountain. But we, we want to do it together. We want to do it as crew. And we want our kids to, like I say, affect positive social change. Because that's the only way we're going to, the only way we're going to avoid terrible things in the world, right? Isn't it? And I know that's a bold thing to say. But if we don't do it in school, where, where else can we do it? Not for the first time in my life. I think I love Andy Sprakes. I want to go back to school and I want to I go know, to the XP I know, school. I know. I think that's what a lot of... I think you that's might the, change your mind, you know, when you get here. It's uh, <laughs> I don't think you'd survive the, the Outward Bound course. I certainly wouldn't. Uh, uh, listen, Andy, we could, I could listen to you all day. It's been an absolute pleasure to have you on. Thanks so much. No, it's been a pleasure too. Great to see you both. Well, I think Jeff goes back to school is the headline out of this episode. Absolutely. I want to go to XP. Get my shorts on. I think probably a lot of our listeners will have thought that too. It was so inspiring. Yeah, I mean, it is interesting, isn't it? It just sounds like fun. It's quite infectious, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And think about how perhaps the conversation about education, there's a swinging of the pendulum which goes between we 
are sending kids to school to create good employees, good economically productive members of society. And then there's the more progressive, we're making good citizens, we're making people who get on with each other, problem solve, live alongside. And, and there seems to be like this eternal struggle between those two things. But what, what strikes me is actually the current setup doesn't do either very well. It teaches people how to pass GCSEs. And then once they're spewed out of the school system, then they have to figure out how to navigate the the world of work and society. Yeah, 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 yeah. It, it, it's not it's not equipping us with the right things. Whichever side of that spectrum you sit on, I, I should say by the way that there's a longer film for people to watch about the XP school. My best friend of mine called Madeline Holt, which we're finding in the show notes. I think I think you are right. I think you know I go back to that thing that Andy said to me all those years ago about industrial age and information age, and it sort of feels like. You know, we still do have a very industrial age school system and there are lots of brilliant teachers and we should say this. And James was quite keen to emphasize this. There are lots of brilliant teachers and head teachers who are trying to navigate through that system. But I think it feels like they're navigating despite the system, sort of in, almost in opposition to the system mm. rather than, rather than backed by the system. But the encouraging thing is, I mean, we picked three guests, you know, I think there are lots, lots more who are thinking in a similar way. And that, I think, is encouraging. Send us your ideas or suggest a guest for a future episode. Email reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com. Find us on Facebook or tweet at cheerfulpodcast. Well, I'm delighted to say that we're now joined by Suzanne Haywood, who is chair of the Haywood Foundation, to tell us a bit more about the Haywood Prize. Suzanne, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much, Ed. I'm delighted to be here. Just for our listeners who don't know, if you don't mind, tell us a, a, a little bit, if you would, about your late husband, Jeremy, and what led to the setting up of the Hayward Foundation, of which you're the chair and the Hayward Prize. Yeah, no, absolutely. So Jeremy was cabinet secretary in the UK for a number of years, uh, and he sadly passed away in 2018. And one of the things that he was very, very passionate about was innovation in public policy. And he was known for bringing innovative new ideas into Whitehall. So after he passed away, I founded the Hayward Foundation. And the idea is to try and create new public policy ideas that we can feed into government, feed into opposition. I mean, we're, we're politically neutral uh, to try and make the UK a better place. And the point of the Hayward Prize is it's an open competition. Anyone can enter uh, with a great new idea for public policy in the UK. We've got a top prize of £25,000 for the best idea. And this is the second time we've run it. And the winning idea from last time has actually been implemented by the government. So it does seem to work as a, as a process to wow. get new ideas into government. What was the idea? So the winning idea was the idea of creating an NHS reserve force. So just like we have the Territorial Army, which is a, a kind of army reserve force, why not have the same thing for the NHS? So doctors who are retiring or nurses or people who want to become medically qualified, we pay them a small amount to keep their medical qualifications up to date. And then if we have something like a pandemic or any other sort of medical emergency, we can bring those people in. Uh, to help us in the NHS. And that's now been implemented by NHS England. 
Fantastic. And there's a parallel youth prize as well. Tell us about some of the ideas you, you heard from young people last time around. Well, something else that Jeremy was passionate about was diversity. So this year, we're making a real push to try and get youth entries into the prize. So we're offering a separate set of prizes for youth entries, although all the youth entries will also go into the main prize. And also, we tried to make the prize even more accessible. So you can now enter the prize by video, by audio. You don't just have to kind of write down your answer, which is how we did it the first time. Tell us a little bit about who the judging panel is and also what happens once somebody wins or is a runner up? Is there a sort of transmission mechanism for their idea? Yeah, so we so we have a great judging panel. We've got uh, Laura Koonsberg is one of our judges this year, uh, and Robert Winston is another one. We try to get people from different sectors who can bring different ideas to it. The Hayward Foundation has, if you like, one foot slightly inside of government in that the connections that we have back into Whitehall because of Jeremy's role as cabinet secretary mean that we're very well linked back into government. But last year, what we did was we also bundled up the best ideas for each department sent them to the permanent secretary of every single department and then had follow-up conversations with them. We also got the, the main prize winners were invited into number 10 last year and shared their ideas kind of verbally with them. Listen, I, I will submit my entry via the official channel. By the youth In the youth entry, yeah. But just, just to take, take the pulse on, do you, do you think any of these ideas have got legs, Suzanne? Um, number one, all TV and radio studios to be fitted with uh, low-level electric shock machines. And every time a politician repeats a line I think it's that a very they've been bad given uh, more than once in an interview, they, they're given tiny electric shocks, but which get in, in, increasingly strong uh, every time they repeat them. I don't think you could possibly ask Suzanne to comment on that. <laughs> yeah. I'm not sure it's a very environmental policy. Exactly. What well, about this? Is a, this is a good health initiative? Opening up schools on a weekend uh, so, so that adults can use the apparatus. Because there's a lot of people like me who I, I find the keep fit thing difficult. But I, I've got very fond memories of using the apparatus in school. Do you have fond memories? I have terrible memories of the apparatus. You don't like climbing up the rope? Oh, I always used to fall off. Of course. The, what yeah. was that thing? The pommel horse. Yes. Oh. Okay. You used to have to jump over it. I think that sounds like a terrible all idea. Right, all right, then, Su Suzanne, I'll, I'll go back to the drawing board. I think. Yeah, yeah. I think I think more thought is more more thought required. But there's some great idea. I know another great idea that we had last year, which I which I love, is the idea that university students we could. Uh, get them to go and help in care homes, you know, to provide company for people in care homes. And that could be one way in which they pay back a little bit of their university grant. So if you do that, oh. you either get a kind of small discount or something, you know, off your off your student grant, which I think is a really nice idea. You could think of a way of formulating that. So it's relatively low cost. There's some benefit for the student, but the big benefit would be that you get students into care homes, you know, because we do have this thing nowadays in the UK where there's such a separation between you know young people and old people and you know trying to get more of those connections to work would be great it's amazing how creative people are when you give them an open challenge like this and tell us just just before you go um what else is the Hayward Foundation up to beyond the prize so the other thing that we do is we do Hayward Fellowships. And the idea here is that we support a senior civil servant uh, to go and spend some time up in Oxford, uh, based at the Blavatnik School, 
thinking about a piece of public policy that, frankly, they don't get time to think about in the day job in Whitehall. So next week, uh, we are delighted that we're going to get our next Hayward Fellow going up to Oxford. Uh, His name is Jonathan Black, and he's going to be doing a fascinating project all about how economic policy and national security policy has become intertwined. What's the deadline, Suzanne? So we've just extended the deadline to the end of February. So there's plenty of time for people to get ideas in. Um, And they just have to go to haywardfoundation.com and uh, they can find all the entry details there. Suzanne, we're we're really delighted that you joined us and very admiring of the the work you're doing and, and the foundation you've set up. And the invitation is to our listeners to enter. Jeff, not so much. Um, uh, no bad ideas in brainstorming. What? There are no bad ideas in brainstorming. I think you've just proved that. Uh, <laughs> no bad ideas. I think you, no bad I ideas. I think you've just proved that. Uh, Suzanne, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Reasons to be cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. You're going to give us the first wahaho of 2023. Wahaho, we're in the outro. We are. And um, here's a question for you. Yes. How's the water temperature? We're all dying well, to know. Well, it's very interesting you should say that because I was talking to Dan yesterday. Mm. Um, it's 6.8 it was yesterday. And Dan says he cannot remember it being so warm. Mm, that's not good, is it? No, it's not good. And I said, was it a Dan 6.8, i.e. he made it up? Um, or That's quite uh, the aspersion to cast on uh, Dan and his water temperature Well, recordings. I think basically Dan, when he doesn't have a temperature gauge, has sufficient kind of powers that he's able to just have a decent estimate and nobody's any the wiser. Oh, so he can just dip his finger in and... and I don't think he even needs to dip his finger in. He just takes the air temperature, has a little sort of... I think that's a gift. It is a gift. Uh, But anyway, he said it was a real 6.8. He's got a proper thermometer now. Um, But that is kind of warm. Should we thank our guests? We should thank you to Dr James Mannion, Dr Naomi Fisher and to Andy Sprakes. And uh, thanks to Suzanne Haywood for telling us about the Haywood Prize too. Absolutely. Emma Corsham is our audio producer. Thank you to Emma, as ever, for getting this all polished and sounding lovely. Our content producer, who is is the wind beneath our wings, is uh, Rachel Barmer, supported by Joe Kenyon at Goldfish. Gail Lofthouse is our announcer. Ed Seed composed the music. James Deacon made our eye dance, and our artwork was designed by Henry Cole. He's been Ed Miliband. He's been Jeff Lloyd. And these have been Reasons to be Cheerful. 
Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.